Welcome to Travel Worth Living, a travel podcast helping to share stories that matter from around the world. My name is Seth, and this week I got to talk with an absolutely incredible career storyteller from South Africa named Rob Kasky. You're going to love hearing his stories of world travel, South African history, and Zulu culture. I literally could have talked with him for hours, and I definitely plan on getting him back on the podcast to share more stories because he has endless amounts of information to share. And I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I enjoyed just sitting down and talking with him. If you want to learn more about Rob or book him as a speaker for an event, even if it's an online event during the pandemic, you can visit his website at robkasky.com. Also, for those of you who have rated my show and left a review of the podcast, thank you so much. I appreciate all the feedback and your support helps other people find this show as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so once it's finished, be sure and connect on social media at Travel Worth Living or on the web at TravelWorthLiving.com. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Rob. So my mother sadly died when I was 12 years of age. I was not yet at high school. And I battled through high school. It was a terrible position for my family to be in motherless and of very little resource. And then in my second last year of high school, which was 1982, there was a school teacher was organizing a trip to the Okavango Delta, which was a quite seminal and extraordinary experience for me. The Okavango Delta, 16,000 square kilometers. When it's flooded, it's bigger than Switzerland and a wildlife mecca. And my father and family couldn't afford for me to go on the trip. And a friend's father, a friend at school, offered to pay the fee for me to go on this trip. And he will never know. He sadly is dead now, and he spent the last years of his life very badly affected by Alzheimer's, and he even forgot who I was. But he really was a hero in my life because that trip in 1982 changed my entire perspective regarding travel, what an important learning curve travel was, how much it appealed to me and how much I wanted in the future ideally to travel. So that really was a seminal travel entree for me and that's really where the love of travel began. I then finished school and went off to uh, the army. My generation in this country, we all had to do two years national service, so we all did army. And I then went to study at... Peter Maritzburg University doing a degree in agriculture. I, was, I majored in agricultural economics. And when I was at university, once again, largely because of um, finances or lack of, I worked as a boardmaster at a school who gave me board and lodging and I trained sport there and supervised homework and all that in exchange for accommodation and food. And then in the early mornings, I used to offload trucks it came down to the local supermarkets at three o'clock in the morning. It was quite uh, demoralizing because often the nightclubbers were coming out of the nightclubs going home after a hard night and I was going to work. Then I'd go back and do my duties at the school, then university, then sports training in the afternoon, homework, and then my study in the evening. It was a very hard time. And in the holidays, I used to look after farms. I used to take care of farms when farmers wanted to go away on vacation. And in between it all, I rode a motorbike, I couldn't afford a car. I did a huge amount of traveling into various parts of Africa. Some of those were very big trips. I mean, uh, in 1990, I rode up to Northern Zaire on a motorbike. I did three trips to Kenya. 
I've been, I don't know, I think 17 trips to Zimbabwe, many to Namibia, Mozambique, Zambia, Malawi, Tanzania. I've done a lot of traveling on motorbikes. And whenever I came back from these trips on a motorbike, there was always a group of people at university who wanted to hear what had happened on the bike because I was seen as being quite unorthodox. I always used to travel alone. I often used to do the trips at the beginning of a new quarter. So I'd take some part of the holiday and some part of the new term to do a trip because I was obliged to work trying to pay my way through university. And while I was at university reading about travel, reading a lot of travel books, taking a great interest in travel, listening to other people's experiences, there were ideas gelling in my mind regarding what I wanted to try and do in terms of travel. And it boiled down to three prime objectives. The one was to travel across Africa from Cape Town to Cairo. The second was to walk in the high Himalayas in Nepal and Tibet. And the third was to drive the Alaskan Canadian Highway from Dawson Creek, British Columbia to Fairbanks, Alaska, one of the great roads and drives of the world. And to try and accomplish that, I was eventually going to have to buy around the world ticket and work to earn money to travel. And I left university and went off to work back in the Okavango Delta, which had made such an impression on me in 1982. And I worked as a photographic safari guide. So I got a vast amount of experience with all the things that guiding pertails in terms of vehicles, camping, outdoor skills, the people skills involved, all that. And because I was enjoying the photography far more than I was enjoying the people or the people side of the work, I was invited by a remarkable man called Tim Liversidge, who produced wildlife documentaries for National Geographic, to come and work for him building a camp in the Okavango Delta, which would be used as a base for filming, lots of vehicles, airboats, various boats, and did a huge amount of work with wildlife, recording where things were on GPSs, that we could go back and film them. We had a huge number of animals that we kept for filming purposes up close from snakes to birds to various mammals. I had a tame honey badger, tame warthog, and lots of snakes, birds. It was a wonderful time. And as a result of that, I met up with a madman called Kingsley Holgate, who probably featured in Grant's talks because Grant and he lived close together and are old friends. And Kingsley was running a trip across Africa from Cape Town to Cairo, and he was very interested in my interest in photography, my knowledge of the outdoors and the bush and all that, and felt that I'd fit quite well into the trip because my dream at that time was still to do a trip across Africa on a motorbike. But at that time in the 90s, it was almost impossible to do as a white South African on a South African passport on a motorbike because much of Africa was just impossible pre-94 for us. And Kingsley invited me to come on his trip, but I felt a special obligation towards my employer and the people I was working for in Botswana with the camp and the modification of vehicles and all that. So I said to Kingsley, I'd fly up to Kenya and join him in Kenya because much of what he was going to be doing up to and including Kenya, including the lakes like Lake Malawi, I had done previously on motorbikes. So I flew into Kenya in June of 1993 and joined up with what was called the Africa Odyssey Expedition. And that trip, we did a huge amount of traveling in Kenya, including Pemba, uh, Lamu, and Zanzibar, Tanzania, Uganda, 
We followed the Rift Valley lakes and the big river systems. We went from there up into Ethiopia, from Ethiopia into the Sudan, and followed the White Nile all the way down to its confluence with the Blue Nile at Khartoum, and then followed the Nile all the way across the Nubian Desert, through Egypt, all the way down to Alexandria on the Mediterranean, where symbolically they poured water out of a gourd that they collected off Cape Point into the Mediterranean as a token of peace and goodwill and having carried this water ceremonially or ceremoniously and symbolically right across Africa and deposited it in the Mediterranean. So that was an incredible trip and really the realization of that dream, although I'd done it in parts, to have traveled effectively from Cape Town to Cairo. And from Cairo, I moved across into Egypt, into Israel, and did a bit of traveling on my own in Israel. And from there, I started a three-year unbroken trip around the world. So I flew to England, worked in England on farms, bought a car, traveled England, Wales, Scotland, sold the car and flew from England to Nepal and did incredible hiking in the high Himalayas in Nepal and Tibet, probably the greatest travel experience of my life. I was deeply influenced by the Buddhist people, the fact that they live their religion seven days a week rather than putting it on for three hours on a Sunday morning, as many of the Christian believers do. And I felt closer to my creator in the high Himalayas than I felt at any other time or place on earth. It was a quite special, spiritual, unequaled experience in my life. From there, I traveled to Thailand, bought a motorbike, and traveled all over Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore, and sold the bike in Singapore, and flew from there to Australia, where I worked on big farms on the western side of Australia at a place called Morrowar, which is about 500 kilometers north of Perth in Western Australia, driving enormous tractors planting uh, grain crops. So the tractors ran 24 hours a day, and I drove for 12. So there were two 12-hour ships, and I used to drive from 12 midnight to 12 midday, and the other shift would drive from 12 midday to 12 midnight. Hard work. We planted 27,000 acres of crops. And with that money, I bought a little car, a 1,200cc four-speed two-door Toyota Corolla, which didn't even have a fuel tank big enough to manage some of the fuel stops in the far north of Western Australia than the Northern Territory. But I was determined to do what they call in Australia driving around the block, which is to drive around Australia. And so I drove right up the west coast of Australia, then across the top to Darwin, into Kakadu, down the middle to Ayers Rock and Uluru, back up and across to the Gulf of Carpentaria, all the way across to Cairns, up into that Mosman Daintree Peninsula, and then down the east coast of Australia, all the way down to Sydney, where I eventually sold that little vehicle and flew to New Zealand. In New Zealand, I worked on dairy farms, saved some money, hitchhiked and traveled extensively on both islands, the North Island and the South Island. And from there, I flew to Hawaii, which when people asked me for my worst travel experience ever, it was Hawaii. I think it is hugely overrated. It is massively expensive. I found the native Hawaiian people uh, cynical. They weren't uh, friendly in the true or honest sense of the word. The backpackers were very expensive. And I got eaten alive by bedbugs. And the bedbug bites went septic on account of the humidity and the heat in Hawaii. 
I couldn't wait to leave. So I changed my ticket to depart early and flew into California where I worked in commercial landscaping and uh, did quite well with a company called North Bay Landscaping who were based in Sonoma, north of uh, Los Angeles. And we worked in all those uh, North Bay areas, uh, Marin, uh, Berkeley, northern parts of San Francisco, very wealthy people who do incredible landscaping jobs. So we did quite large-scale landscaping jobs, working with machines, planting, terracing banks. It was a great time. And out of it, I bought a van that I gutted. I took all the seats out of it. It was basically a small people mover, a Toyota Hi-Ace, as we call them here in this country. And out of skips and out of what people are throwing out of their homes, I did it out as a camper. And I put mosquito netting over the windows, put curtains in because I knew Alaska, the far north of Alaska, is pretty much 19 or 20 hours of daylight. You can't sleep unless you have decent curtains. And I set the vehicle up completely for a travel adventure with a plan to drive the Alaskan-Canadian highway. And I started off by going south down to the southern end of the Baja Peninsula to see the whales and parts of Mexico, and then drove up through California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, back into Oregon, Washington, and then crossed over into Canada and moved up to mile zero of the Alaskan-Canadian Highway, which was at Dawson Creek, British Columbia, and drove with great success and great joy that incredible road, which is nearly 2,500 kilometers between Dawson Creek and Fairbanks, Alaska. Spent time in Alaska, Denali, all the major tourist places, the wild rivers, caught fish, caught salmon, and then I came back down on the marine ferry system and did uh, Juneau, Haines, Skagway, all those little places and got off at Prince Rupert back in British Columbia and then drove eastwards back across Canada into the Great Plains and worked on a farm on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border at a place called Lloydminster. With a great family I'm still in touch with, they've been out to stay with me in Africa and we've done some trips with them here in Africa. And eventually I drove the van back to Vancouver, sold it to a varsity student who wanted to take it back south into the Baja Peninsula, which was really full circle in my opinion. And um, traveled back to England, spent some time in England, back to the Czech Republic, spent some time there. And eventually my family said, Rob, we cannot believe that you're still away because I'd done the Africa Odyssey expedition. I'd worked for three and a half years in Botswana, then six months with the Africa Odyssey expedition, and then unbroken three years traveling around the world. I didn't come home in that time. And my family were putting a lot of pressure on me to come home, put on some roots, and um, really just start a life. But I felt that my time on the road I learned more than I ever learned at university. And what a lot of people are blissfully unaware of is that my father died when I was at university. I was 22. So my mother died when I was 12. My father died when I was 22. And I was executive of the state and I had much to contend with. My sister was nursing. My brother was still at school. And in it all, I never really had time to grieve and mourn or address the cracks that developed in my soul. And my repair process, my catharsis, was to go and work in Botswana. And it served me extremely well from that in time alone with animals in the bush. And it's partly why I moved away from the photographic safari guiding to pure photography and documentary filmmaking, where I was alone and not responsible really for other people. 
And then, of course, the invitation came for the Africa Odyssey and this incredible trip around the world with the dream to travel Africa, realized the high hiking in the Himalayas realized, and then driving the Alaskan Canadian Highway. And you probably wonder where this story is going, because when I got back to South Africa, I started a little business called Africa Custom Tours that did wildlife, game viewing, bird watching, fly fishing, four-wheel drive instruction, all that sort of thing. And I didn't really have enough money to give it a capital injection. And when times were quiet in the winter season, I would work on farms, taking care of farms, as I'd done at university. And I was fairly well known in the district. So I could literally move from one farm to another, taking care of dairy farms in this area, which I did very happily, and I like to believe successfully. So back to telling stories at university. Because every time I came back from a bike trip, there was a group of people who wanted to hear what had happened on the bike. And that group grew and grew and grew and eventually outgrew the canteen at the agricultural faculty. And we moved out onto the banks of the car park out under the trees. And there were many people who listened to the stories who were strangers to me. I didn't know who they were. And I was just relating to them what had happened on the motorbike. And unbeknown to me, I was developing in their mind the reputation of telling a reasonable story. And one of those people quite fortuitously or serendipitously became curator of the Rorkstrift Museum. Now, I don't know if you've heard about Rorkstrift, but there was a famous war in this country called the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. And it was world famous for two battles, the Battle of Isantrawana and the Battle of Rorkstrift. The Battle of Rorkstrift saw the award of more Victoria Crosses than any other battle in history, including both world wars, 11 in total. And there was a man who was the doyen of storytelling and certainly the doyen of those stories called David Rattray, who was looking for someone to help him with the telling of stories on the Anglo-Zulu War battlefields. I didn't know him. I didn't know much about these stories, but I do have a long connection with Zulu people because I grew up speaking Zulu. My playmates were Zulus before I went to school. And when I was in the army, I served as Zulu troops because I can speak Zulu. And I realized then that I have quite a long and deep connection with Zulu people and a respect for their warrior ways, their culture, and their past. And the curator must have had a moment, probably in the middle of the night, or maybe he was in the shower, and he remembered me telling stories at university about motorbike trips. And he said to David, I know this chap from university. I don't even know where he is now. But he told a good story, and I think if he was interested he would be ideal to train and coach as a storyteller on these battlefields. So he traced me through friends of friends because I didn't know him and introduced me by letter to David Rattray. That was at the beginning of 2000. And David Rattray was keen for me to come and join him telling stories on the Anglo-Zulu War battlefields. And when I heard him telling his stories, I was absolutely terrified because he was regarded as the finest storyteller of his age in the world by the British press. He was very, very highly regarded as a raconteur, as a lecturer, and as a storyteller. Now, I have no background in history, drama, theater, or public speaking of any sort. So I said to David, when he finally convinced me to at least give it a try, that we would do it on a strictly three-month probation period. So if it didn't work for me, I could pull out, and if it didn't work for him, he could say, Rob, it's not working. Let's call it a day. 
And in that began effectively doing another degree because the lectures that we do on the Anglo-Zulu War battlefields are intense enough that effectively you have to have done a degree of study to present the sort of stories that we present. At Essential One, it's a three-hour lecture. At Rockstrift, it's a more than two-hour lecture with all the commensurate questions and discussions that go around the subject. So I started working with David in the year 2000, and I thought got a handle on the storytelling and what he was doing, doing it my own way, but being coached and mentored and him leading by example. And then in January of 2007, as happens in this country of ours with its violent past and sadly still to be violent future, David Rattray was brutally murdered in his home in broad daylight. I was in Bali. I was delivering lectures at a conference in Bali for Adrian Amro Bank out of Holland, and they had their conference in Bali. And I call it my Bali bomb because my partner and I were in Bali and we had to get on a plane and fly straight back. It was horrific. Um, everyone thought the business would collapse, that it all depended on David, and we were determined from a pride point of view to try and keep the business surviving and to prove that the product was bigger than the man. But it was a very, very difficult time. That was in 2007. In 2008, the world economy went into freefall with a financial crash. And with it, a huge number of people were no longer traveling. The business was almost entirely dependent on foreign travelers and foreign tourists. So we had this double whammy of David in 2007, and then the world economic crisis in 2008. So there were very difficult times for us. And the pressure that was placed on myself and my partner running the lodge, keeping all the lectures going and so forth, was enormous. And I realized that the stresses were eventually going to kill me. So I decided that I would eventually move on, but I wanted it to be a reasonable time frame. I, in fact, did five full years at Fugitive Drift Lodge after David died. But I've had a passion with Antarctica since I was a child, and I've always wanted to get there. And I knew that the trips down there were too expensive for me to afford as a fair-paying passenger. And with all the centenaries coming up with Amundsen in 2011, Scott in 2012, and Shackleton, or his most famous journey, the Endurance, in 2014 to 2016, I decided that I was going to actively begin to research those explorers and tell stories about them with a view to getting good enough to be invited onto the expedition ships as a speaker going down into Antarctica as part of the expedition teams. So that was a very active exercise and process to try and get onto those teams. And I was thankfully successful. And I went down to Antarctica in a jet for the first time on the centenary of Amundsen getting to the pole, which was the 14th of December, 2011. And then I did my first trip down there in a ship with a company called Hapag Lloyd out of Germany in uh December of 2013. And I've been going down every year since, sometimes a number of times a year with various operators. And out of that has grown an interest in the Arctic, the North Pole, the Northwest Passage, and all that northern frigid wilderness in the north of our country. So these days I work as a specialist guide on the battlefields of the Anglo-Zulu War, and in a more latter capacity on the Anglo-Boer War, because we had another famous war that took place in this country 20 years later called the Anglo-Boer War, which was between the British 
and the Boers, the Dutch settlers in the states of the Free State and the Transvaal. And then out of it, I tell stories at conferences, dinners, seminars, schools, charities. I do regular lecture tours pre-COVID to the UK, telling stories. These talks now take me all over the world and regularly into the polar regions, both Antarctic and Arctic, on the ships. So in terms of a life lived and dreams realized, if someone told me 20 years ago I'd be making a living one day of telling stories, I would have laughed at them. And yet that's the reality now, 20 years on, irrespective of the COVID threat and the COVID challenges that we've all faced, I've had to embrace this online environment, which does not sit comfortably with me. I would far rather be lecturing live, presenting live. And quite when we're going to get back to that, to large gatherings remains to be seen. In the interim, we are obliged to do this, and it's highly convenient because you and I couldn't meet for a podcast recording at a coffee shop in Reykjavik or in Johannesburg. It's simply out of the question. And if you were trying to make a living out of podcasts or add to your living out of podcasts, you couldn't interview 30 people in 30 weeks in various parts of the world where you're not doing it online. So there are huge advantages to this. Anyway, last year in May, I had a major motorbike accident, did myself considerable harm, including smashing my left leg very badly. And that's been rebuilt and reconstructed. But it's been life-changing in terms of what I can do and can't do in terms of walking on the battlefields, walking in the Antarctic and the Arctic. Even my ability to drive Zodiacs has been somewhat compromised by that. But that, in a fairly short pricey, is a story really of my life over the last 40 years, say 1982 when I did that trip to Botswana, to 2020 in a nutshell, in terms of what I've done and some of my travel experiences on a very, very limited budget. And uh, it would be fair to say, Seth, that I've never been someone who wanted to tick countries off on a list. I've never been a country chaser in that regard. I would far rather immerse myself in the culture and a country and spend time there than doing 14 countries in 21 days in Europe on a Contiki tour. That holds no appeal to me whatsoever. So I've spent considerable time in the countries that I've described to you, working, getting to know the locals, earning enough money to buy a vehicle and saving for a trip, and then traveling around those countries and trying to really immerse myself in the country I'm fortunate enough to be traveling in and consider myself very fortunate thus far to have done so. That is an absolutely incredible story. And I just love uh, how you've gone out and and done so much uh, with what you have. You don't wait for having lots of money to go and travel. And like you were talking about, you wanted to go down to the Antarctica. And so you researched it. You started telling those stories and got invited to uh, go down as a speaker. Uh, something I would like to start off with, since you're from South Africa and you've you've done so much work uh, there on the battlefields, could I know we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but would you be able to share some stories of why the Anglo-Zulu uh, war was so important for South African history and what was at stake there and what happened, how it, how it changed the country? Well, look, to understand that, you need to go back a little bit to the fact that a huge number of settlers came out to South Africa from Europe, largely on account of religious persecution, the Edict of Nantes, and then there were very difficult times in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, and Europeans and Brits moved all over the world. Many came out to South Africa. 
And the Dutch were prominent amongst others from Western Europe, and they settled in the Cape province, and many of them had slaves. With the abolition of slavery in 1834, slavery in South Africa was abolished completely in 1834. And slave owners had to release their slaves and were promised compensation, but they had to collect the compensation in person in London. Now, for the average Dutch farm in the Cape, that was absolutely out of the question. So they began to move inland into South Africa in what became known as the Great Trek or the Great Movement. And they came into contact and eventually into conflict with a mighty nation on the eastern seaboard of South Africa called the Zulus. And this led to a mighty battle on the 16th of December of 1838 called the Battle of Blood River. It's called that because the Boer shot so many Zulus in the Ngame River that the waters of the river eventually ran red with blood. And for a week leading up to that battle, the Boers had held a nightly vigil praying to God for victory over the Zulu people and saying that if they were victorious, they would keep the day holy for the rest of time and build a church in his honor in their capital, Peter Maritzburg, which is just down the hill from where I live, about 20 kilometers away. They never lost a man in that battle, which gave them the unequivocal belief in their minds that they were the chosen people in the promised land. Now, I'll give you this background, Seth, because most people don't understand how important that is to understanding South Africa's history. And they would eventually establish themselves in the states of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. As the political machinations continued, Natal, where I live, and the Cape Province largely became part of the British state and they were British colonies. This rendered the Free State and the Transvaal absolutely landlocked, which made it very difficult for them to trade and have exposure to the outside world. Then in 1867, diamonds were discovered in this country. And with the diamond pipe being discovered at Kimberley, the greatest pipe of diamonds the world will ever know, people flocked here from all over the world to try their luck on the diamond mines. And the Boers, the Dutch and the Free State and the Transvaal felt incredibly threatened by that. The British in the interim felt that South Africa, with their discovery of diamonds, would make a fine addition to the crown of the empire, along with the sea route around the Cape, great farming lands, cheap labor, all that. And they proposed a plan of confederation for South Africa, as they'd done with Canada in 1867. And the Zulus, who'd had these fights with the Boers, had a new king who ascended the throne in 1872, who was resurrecting the Zulu army. And the British felt that the resurrection of that Zulu army posed a major military threat to their plan of confederation. And they felt that if that army was not subdued and disbanded, it would be a major stumbling block to the stability of a confederation. And that is why the Anglo-Zulu War took place in 1879, with the British eventually being victorious. Now, the Boers, or the Dutch, thought if these Zulus can beat the British, which they did at Isantrawana and at some other battles in the Anglo-Zulu War, and we smash the Zulus at Blood River, we can smash the British. And this led to the first Transvaal War of Independence in 1880-1881, where the Boers gave the British a series of seriously bloody noses. And the British had to withdraw and give the Boers the independence in the Free State and the Transvaal. Unequivocal independence. 
It was verified by the Convention of Verenigen and that of the Sand River in the Free State and the Transvaal. And then in 1886, the greatest reef of gold the world will ever know was found on the Witwatersrand. And once again, people stormed into South Africa to try their luck on the gold mines and the gold fields. And President Kruger of the Transvaal knew that if those people were given the vote, there were enough of them to vote his country away from him. And they knew that if the Transvaal lost their independence, they would lose theirs. And this eventually led to a major eruption and war in this country in October of 1899, the main Anglo-Boer War, or the Second South African War, as it is often known. Now, to an outsider like yourself, this probably sounds incredibly complex, and it is. Our country is young, but it has an incredibly complex and tumultuous history. And you need to have some understanding of these various factions and scenes to have an understanding as to why we have such a violent past and why these wars played such an important role in the development of South Africa and also in the eventual collapse of the Great British Empire. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating how it all ties together on a global scale. But the, the Zulu nation, were they the only native Africans um, before the Europeans started coming in? They're in South Africa. They were just the largest or where did they, they come were, in? They were not the largest, but they were the most militarily um, influenced and also probably the most aggressive. And they have only been here for less than 1,500 years. They came down from the Horn of Africa, from the eastern side of Africa, and they, because they had already mastered the Iron Age and had Iron Age weapons, were a easily able to displace and overwhelm the native Khoi, Hottentot, and San Bushman people who already inhabited South Africa. Now, the Zulus, along with a lot of other tribes in South Africa, like to say, we took the land from them. And they need to be reminded that they took the land from many who were here before them, and conveniently their history starts with them being here, indicating that there were no former inhabitants of the country. There were many who were here well before the Zulus and others who came from East and West Africa, respectively, and settled here in this fertile, well-watered, disease-free part of the African continent. Interesting. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about the Zulu culture, because I know it's, like you were saying, it's so important in the history of South Africa. Um, and if you don't mind uh, telling me a little bit about the language, too, since you speak Zulu. Well, the Zulu culture, the Zulus are probably one of the best-known uh, tribes in Africa. And let's face it, with the phonetic al alphabet, Z is still represented by Zulu. And the Zulus were forged through a process of bloodshed. They had a famous, famous chieftain, paramount chieftain, called Shaka, who came from illegitimate beginnings. He had no real right to the throne. And when his mentor and his savior called Dingaswab, the Mtatra people died. Shaka marched in and took over as chief of the Mtatra people with no real right to that leadership role. But he was a very powerful, aggressive man and confident enough to meet any resistance with a crushed skull. And he began with the Mtatra army to dominate small neighboring armies and build a larger army. He also revolutionized their fighting tactic, creating a big offensive fighting shield a short shafted broad bladed stabbing as a guy that the Zulus called 
It's a sound it makes, onomatopoeia, as it goes into and is pulled from the human body. He created a fighting formation of the horns of the bull, where younger bodies of fighting men would envelop the enemy and encircle it, and then their head and chest would come in to finish the enemy off. He was ruthless. He rampaged all over the region and became known as Africa's Black Napoleon. And he was murdered by his two half-brothers, Mshangan and Dengan, in September of 1828, and lies buried at a town called Stangol, Kwadokosa, here on the north coast, about 100 kilometers north of Durban. Now, Shaka's legacy li lives on because the Zulus became the most feared and revered black nation in Southern Africa. Everyone was terrified of them, and they caused huge displacements. People moved away simply to get away from the depredations of the Zulu army. Now, what is interesting and rather sad for me in terms of Shaka is that many people don't realize that in Indonesia, in 1815, there was a mighty volcanic explosion called Tambora. And Tambora spewed square kilometers of ash cloud into the atmosphere that caused climate change all over the world. There were famines in China. There were children who died in New York walking home from summer school barefooted. And all over the eastern seaboard of Africa and parts of Europe, there were widespread crop failures on account of the climate change and the cooler temperatures from all the ash in the atmosphere. In Europe, they call it the summer of no oats. And the oats were important to feed the horses. They had no horse feed. And with it, there were rapid developments in the development of the bicycle at that time. And many people say that the hardships suffered here in South Africa, it was called the Impekani, the crushing, were all attributable to Shaka. And in my reading of it all, I think more of it has to do with crop failures and climate change, all associated with Tambora, than ever had to do with Shaka. But Tambora and Shaka coming to the throne happened at exactly the same time. So the Zulus have an interesting culture that is obviously being anglicized and modernized as we go along with considerable tension between the old traditional Zulus who want to hold on to their old norms and customs and the younger ones who are moving away from it. But they have a dowry or a lobala, which is a bride price for the paying of wives. They practice polygamy. A man can have more than one wife. And often if a brother dies, surviving brothers will assimilate the wives of that deceased brother. The language is fascinating because it's filled with cliques that most foreigners find impossible to deal with. Now, I know that Icelandic is considered the most complex language in the world, and I stand in awe. I used to travel in Iceland listening to people on the buses and in coffee shops, just listening to their language, which was extraordinary. But in Zulu, for example, they say, which is to disembowel a human being. Mumula is to cut someone's throat. Of the Kungava people. That's Sechayo Kangobas, that's his surname. Of the Kungava people, that's his tribe name. They say, uh, the frog jumped over the road. Now, these Zulu pronunciations are almost impossible for our British guests to pronounce. And they're always delighted when they can recognize a word that we might say that they've read in a book and have no idea how to pronounce it. So the zoos are numerically now around 7 million in South Africa. So they are a very, very significant part of the population in South Africa and should be more politically, commercially, and mil militarily involved. 
But because the other tribes and nations are also terrified of them, they've been marginalized. And they were smashed by the British at the Battle of Ulundi on the 4th of July, 1879. And the iron rod with which they'd been forged and developed was taken from them. And they were given nothing to replace it with. And with it, it was obvious to expect that an age of social deterioration and degradation would begin, sadly. You know, King Quechua, the king of the Zulus at the time, the Anglo-Zulu war said, if I don't kill my people, they don't listen to me. Now, for the average Westerner, we can't really understand that way of leading a people. But it was not long before the Anglo-Zulu war that the British still hung children for the theft of a loaf of bread. So these things need to be placed in perspective in terms of the times at which they took place and what was happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's that's very interesting to me. And like you said, uh, when we when we study history, we tend to study history in one aspect, in one area. But just like today, events from all over the world affect each history. And the worldview at the time is very similar no matter what part of the world you're you're from. So I love that point that you made. That's so interesting. Um, and then the the Boer Wars, that you already covered that a little bit, right? That's when the Boers uh, were like, hey, we can throw out the British. That's the battlefields that you also talk at, correct? Look, the Boer War took place all over South Africa. So I concentrate on the Boer War battlefields that are close to my home. And there were a number of very significant battles that took place in the first three months of the war along a big river in our province called the Tugela, and it became known as the Tugela Line. And when the town of Ladysmith was besieged by the British, or rather, the British and Ladysmith were besieged by the Boers on the 1st of November of 1899, there was an increasing clamor in Britain to have that siege relieved, because along with Ladysmith, the Boers also besieged the towns of Mafeking and Kimberley in the Cape, which the British found extremely embarrassing. And at this time, where reporters and the media were so active, they couldn't believe that a group of armed farmers were giving them such a hard time. You must understand that the British Empire at that time was at its height. And at the height of the Anglo-Boer War, there were 450,000 trained British soldiers chasing 22,000 armed farmers around South Africa and being made to look the laughing stock. And with it, the British hierarchy lost their sense of humor completely. And the Boers who were captured were shipped off to concentration camps and prisoner of war camps as far afield as Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and St. Helena, right out in the Atlantic Ocean. And more importantly, they put the aged, the women, and the children, along with their black helpers and staff, into concentration camps. They called them internment camps at the time, but they figured it was the only way to effectively burn the Boer supply system and the Boer resources in this country. And our country has never recovered from the antagonism that it created because a huge number of people died in the concentration camps, largely of malnutrition and disease on account of the poor hygiene. The men were shipped off to prisoner of war camps all over the world and the country's economy was effectively completely destroyed. So when you hear about antagonism in this country between the Afrikaans or the Boer language and the English or the British, it stems back to the deep-seated resentment that still festers on account of the Anglo-Boer War. And as a result, we see far more interest and far more visitors coming out to share and explore the Anglo-Zulu War 
than we see coming out for the Anglo-World War, simply because of this collective conscience, this embarrassment, this terrible shame that took place in terms of the concentration camps, a scorched earth policy shot all the livestock, burnt and destroyed the homesteads, destroyed the farms, and divide the country up into camps with blockhouses and barbed wire fences to literally drive the Boers into a corner like you would a rabbit on a drive. It is a shocking part of our history. Yeah, one that I actually did not know much about either. Yeah, that that's great. And then uh, you also had apartheid. And when did that, how does that work into all of this? Well, it's the apartheid is a very, very complex and controversial subject in our country's history because the generals who negotiated for peace at the end of the Boer War in May of 1902 were determined that the black question and the black franchise in South Africa had to be looked at and needed to be incorporated into the country. The British were in such a hurry, I think shamefully, to get out of South Africa that they said that they would negotiate a peace so long as the black question remained off the negotiating table. And then in 1910, when the Union of South Africa came about, the great leaders in this country, including Louis Boerta and Jan Smuts, were unsure about quite how to incorporate the black population of South Africa into the franchise and the great country that South Africa was destined to be. And unfortunately, between 1910 and 1948, there were a huge number of Afrikaans, poor people in this country, who felt incredibly threatened in terms of jobs, security, their futures, by burgeoning numbers of black people. And eventually, they formed a political party called the Nationalist Party, which under their leader, Hendrik Vervoort, came to power. They ousted the Union Party under Jan Smuts in 1948, which is officially when apartheid began in this country because they immediately created in the legislation paths of separate development. And there was definitely an elevated privileged path for whites, less privileged for Indians and coloreds, and certainly far less privileged and advantaged for blacks. But as I mentioned earlier, and it's partly why I mentioned it, Seth, I always say to those who believe that apartheid began in this country in 1948, they are 110 years late. Remember the Battle of Blood River in December of 1838, 110 years earlier, where the Boers never lost a man. They'd been praying to God for victory over the Zulu people, and the victory gave them this belief that they were the chosen people in the promised land. And many of them were deeply religious, and they find references in the Bible that relate to the inferiority of black people, particularly those with their peppercorn curly hair. And as a result, they began to believe that they were a superior race and the blacks were an inferior race. And that obviously became written into the legislation 110 years later in 1948. But apartheid and the process of apartheid is a shameful history in South Africa. It's a very controversial subject and one I stay as far as possible from because it's a veritable minefield. And I don't know how South Africa is quite ever going to right the wrongs of apartheid and get through this process of bitterness and resentment 
that so many feel towards one another, largely on account of apartheid. Yeah, I find that interesting, uh, especially as an American, because exactly like you said, there were a lot of slave owners back in our history around the same time period um, who believed it was biblical to have slaves. And it was in the slaves' best interest that they continued to be treated as inferior to them. And it, it's it's sad. Like, it's terrible. It's absolutely awful, especially when you make uh, oppressing another person as part of your moral high ground so dangerous absolutely and i'm glad you have that insight as an american with your history in america because you will understand it infinitely better than the average scandinavian will for sure yeah yeah because we're dealing with uh, a lot of the same uh terrible history that you guys are there in south africa well, man, I don't want to take too much of your time. I mean, I could literally listen to your stories for hours, uh, hear you talk for hours. Um, and we focused a lot about the South African history, but I'd like to touch a little bit about um, your career as a storyteller uh, and just talk a, talk a little bit about that. What keeps you going as a storyteller? What, uh, what is your passion with travel storytelling? Well, look, there are a whole number of uh, interesting aspects and factors involved here, Seth, and it's an interesting question that you pose. Because really, as a storyteller, I feel that I'm effectively a performer, almost an actor. So there is this pressure to perform, to entertain, to engage with people on a regular basis. And I think actors feel the same sort of pressure uh, in their performances. More importantly than that, as a storyteller, you have a unique privilege and responsibility to positively uplift and affect an audience's thinking. And I love the responsibility and the privilege that this vocation brings to me. And hopefully, people will depart a story feeling better informed, enlightened, and more positive than they did pre-hearing that story. So I particularly try to tell stories that are positive, entertaining, engaging, even the tragic stories about the war. I don't really believe that I tell stories about history. I tell stories about human beings, and it's in that that these stories have their appeal. It's in that that the appeal reaches out to women and to younger people. It's not all about strategy. And what happened in the battles, it's about human beings. I break the battles down to human beings and what their experiences were in particular battles or particular situations. I would never have believed that it was possible to make a living as a storyteller. David Rattray proved that theory or that thought completely incorrect. He built a multi-million rand business out of little more than the spoken word but then he had a particular skill set and was regarded as the finest wordsmith and racketeer of his age in the world. And I've been lucky enough to ride along on his coattails. And of course, the world changed for us immeasurably upon his death in January of 2007. And then I've expanded the concept of storytelling by taking it into schools, into seminars and conferences and so forth, where one would probably say that I'm a professional speaker. But the audiences that listen to me still feel very strongly 
that I'm a storyteller. There are a lot of professional speakers who speak about leadership and man management and strategy and sales and PowerPoints and so forth. I try to never use a prop. So I rely on little more than the spoken word and will simply stand up and tell a story. And it really is a unique privilege. I also feel a great responsibility in terms of people are paying me to tell the story. So there's an obligation on my part to deliver and hopefully realize their expectation of what that story is going to deliver them. And of course, I'm always working on the repertoire, expanding the repertoire of the stories, trying to improve the language and the way in which I share information. So if, for example, I'm sharing certain information in six sentences, I'm always looking at ways to break that down to four, which will give me time to include two more sentences to make the story richer in some other aspect. And it has been a fascinating, fascinating road for me, because as I say, I studied agriculture. I have a background in agriculture, photographic safari regarding photography and travel. So this was an entirely new direction, 180 degrees swing in my career path in my mid-30s. And now 20 years on, at 55, I consider it to be an absolute blessing and a great vocation that's taken me to places all over the world, and I hope will continue to do so post-COVID. And it's been an absolute privilege. And I think that the best way to probably handle this, Seth, is to say, you've got my details. It's been a treat and a pleasure speaking with you. And why don't we down the line, assuming, and I'm hoping it will, that your podcast series continues, we have another chat because I have a great deal to share with those who are willing to listen and wanting to engage. And even in an hour like this, we've literally scratched the surface of my thankfully richly blessed, abundantly lived life thus far. But having said all that, you made the point earlier, you need to have the courage of your convictions and the guts to seize opportunities that come one's way. There are far too many people whose life is lived suboptimally because they're afraid to seize opportunities that come their way within reason. I'm not talking about things that are against the law or things that are completely outrageous. But really and truly, one needs to be ready to seize opportunities that come one's way. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the biggest things, just from a personal aspect, that has held me back in the past is uh, fear of failure. Um, you know, there's, for, for instance, starting this podcast, there is no reason I should be afraid of it. All you're doing is starting to talk to people, talking about travel, sharing their stories. But in the back of your mind, it's like, well, once I start this, what if it doesn't grow? What if nobody wants to hear these stories? What if, you know, what if, what if, what if? And then it holds you back. You're like, ah, I'll, I'll start that someday. But I was like, you know, I'm just going to do it. It's something I have a passion about. I'm going to jump in and do it. And I have been incredibly blessed just with being able to talk to and amazing people like you about the uh, the impact that they have felt from global travel and being able to share that with the world. And so, yeah, just exactly what you were saying, just jumping in. For somebody who is, say, a young person right now who is deeply uh, enthralled with travel, loves travel, and they're looking at what they want to do when they grow up, and they're looking at, you know, being a doctor or going to law school or being a mechanic or, you know, all the, all the uh, typical jobs that you might have, but they want to do something else. 
What are some practical things that you could share with them for having a dream job like you have, something that's very unconventional that they might not have even thought of before? Well, I think that the first thing I'd recommend to young people who don't have responsibilities yet and have the freedom to travel and experience is to allow themselves to experience as much as possible. Not to be reserved about traveling into that part of the city because they fear it's unsafe. Not to go to an Indian wedding, I'm using that as an example, because they don't feel culturally in touch. Not to go and watch a drag race because they think it's noisy and offensive, the smell, and why on earth would people do that? Because it's in making yourself available to all sorts of opportunities out there that expands your mind. And when you are young and have the opportunity to do so without the responsibilities is the ideal time to get out and provide yourself of those opportunities, firstly. Secondly, I would recommend to people always that they have an open mind, which you've really advocated in terms of travel. Because I think one learns more traveling and on the road than you will ever learn in a conventional education doing a degree. And you need to have an open mind. You don't want to take a one-year ticket and restrict yourself to a year. By the same token, I think people think, well, I'm going to set off and I can't speak the language in Thailand and it might not be uh, ideal for me and I might lose my passport. And then that reality takes place. They have their passport stolen or lost and they fly home. No, no. You need to have an open mind and you need to get out there and do it while you can because you'll probably find that the realizations learned along the way make you aware of a whole plethora of opportunities and things that you'd never considered. And you know, now with COVID and the whole digital online revolution, Seth, I say to folks more and more that we're needing to think laterally, we're needing to think out of the box. And those careers, you mentioned lawyers and doctors and mechanics, those careers are going to become more and more subsidiary to a host of others where people are going to be doing their medical checks online. People are going to be driving electric cars and they're going to be using Uber and they're not going to need mechanics down the line. Now, I'm very mechanically orientated. I love cars. I'm a real petrol head and I rue the day that that happens. But I have to accept that the world is moving that way. And I'll say to youngsters, go out and hit life with a big stick. Prevail yourself of every opportunity that comes your way, good and bad. And in it all, you'll somehow find your way. And I wish you well on that journey. I love that. That is a that is fantastic advice. And I'll go ahead and wrap it up with that. Uh, I always end my each episode uh, with a rapid fire facts section where I ask my guests a bunch of travel related facts and you just say the first thing that comes to mind. So it's just a really fun way to wrap up our conversation here. Do you prefer beaches or cities? Beaches. What is the worst food that you've ever tried? Very hot curry. <laughs> I'm with you there. Uh, do you prefer group or solo travel? Solo travel. What is your favorite city that you've ever visited? Kathmandu. Mm. What is the worst airport that you've ever flown through? Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
If you could live anywhere in the world, is there any place you want to live permanently? I love the area I live right now, the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands. I'd love to be on a bigger piece of land, but this is the area, as Zulus say, Ikaiwako, your home, where you live amongst people of your own inshlabo, your own type, your own sort. This is my homeland. I've traveled a lot, and Mama Africa brought me home. I love it. When you travel, do you prefer a strict schedule or go with the flow? Go with the flow. Uh, do you prefer train or bus? Bus. And then this is the last question. It can be as long as you want it to be. What makes travel worth it to you personally? I think what makes travel worth it for me personally is the freedom that it creates for one. The idea of having some money in your pocket, a passport and being able to travel and stop and go as you wish is a quite, quite unique situation that most people experience very rarely, if ever, in their lives. And that for me is what's really special. For me, travel is not about a destination. It's about the journey. It's about the learning, the awareness, the contemporary being in the moment, enjoying every experience and opportunity along the way, rather than rushing to something that is familiar, something that's comfortable, something that you perhaps aspire to. And uh, I've never traveled for the sake of ticking off countries or ticking off lists. I've traveled for the sake of the deep satisfaction, pleasure, and learning it's always provided me. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this conversation with your friends. You can find me on social media at TravelWorthLiving or on the web at TravelWorthLiving.com. I sincerely hope you'll join me again next week for another incredible conversation about travel. I'm Seth Sutherland, and this is Travel Worth Living.